The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. And if you would look with me in Jude and verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Of course, he's also half-brother of Jesus, as was James. And as you know, when we studied, of course, that book of James. And then he says this, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now watch. Beloved, speaking to believers, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, I'm going to write um, uh, our common salvation issues. In other words, maybe you could even see it as a, I'm going to do a, I was going to give you a C.S. Lewis mere Christianity. I wanted to write those things to you. But while I was getting ready to do that, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, brothers and sisters, in that text, we're already finding out what? We're going to have to contend for the faith. Now, James is going to teach us how to contend without being contentious. He's going to, like Peter teaches us, how to defend without being defensive. As Jesus teaches us how to speak truth in love. And so he is going to do that for us, but don't miss the fact that part of the life of the Christian and a duty of the church, which is a bulwark and pillar of the truth, is to, in fact, support, be built upon the truth and support the truth, contend for it. Why? Because there will always be the work of Satan opposed to it to distract it, to, to distract us from the truth, to dilute the truth, uh, to, um, to bring discouragement and lead us away from the truth. That's what is always before us. So he said, it was necessary for me to write to you to contend for this truth. Notice this truth is not something by the evolution of man's discovery. The truth is that which has been delivered. It is a matter of divine revelation. Contend for the faith, the faith that is that body of truth that gives glory to God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that glorious body of truth that is revealed to us. It is delivered to us. The Holy Spirit brought that truth to us carried to us through chosen apostles and prophets, 40-plus human agents that he then inspired to give us the truth that is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So I'm going to write to you to contend for that truth once and for all delivered to the saints. Why is that important? Because certain people... There are people that at times we have to even mark out by name. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. What do they do? They pervert the grace of our God 
into sensuality. And they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I wish I could tell you that people who teach false doctrine come to the church with a neon sign and with a uniform that says, false teacher. But they don't. They creep in. Certain persons have crept in. Now, God is sovereignly in control of this because God knows in such times comes our greatest advances in understanding and articulating the truth. Brothers and sisters, except for a few of the early confessions that are given to you in the Scripture, and perhaps arguably the Apostles' Creed, almost every single profitable, helpful creed and confession in the 2,000 years of the church has been developed in the context of having to stand firm against error. Almost every single one of them. Most notably would be the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was under duress by an apostate king. And rulers and legislators called them together for this multi-year project that we now have what I think is the premier confession with the, with the uh, instruments of teaching of the larger and shorter catechisms. That's where those things have been born. In other words, when these things happen, it's not that God's been taken by surprise and so now uh, let's scurry to hold the ramparts. No, no. Our God is sovereign. His truth will triumph. It will break error. That truth will always stand. The spirit of truth will bear its fruit, and the spirit of error will be exposed. Those things will happen, but we always have to be ready to contend. Right now, I believe, and I think our elders have affirmed this by asking me to preach on this, I I believe that our most, I believe our most trenchant adversarial movement against the gospel is contemporary progressive Christianity. I have tried to take the time in this series to show you um, that one of the ways to understand it is to go back about a hundred years. Here we are at the turn of the 20th to the 21st century as we see the penetrating, insidious, creeping movement of progressive Christianity into the evangelical church. But what's really interesting, when you take a look at it, one of the things that struck me was how much it is actually dare I say at least a first cousin to something that was, that was attacking and that has rendered apostate the mainline Protestant church at the 19th to 20th century, and that was liberal Christianity. Now, why is it a cousin? Because they're both cut from the same fabric. They're both cut from the same bolt of cloth, and it begins with their motivation and their mission. And so in liberal Christianity in the 19th to 20th century, there was the motivation, uh, we need to save the church from cultural irrelevance. We need to make the church relevant. 
And now here we are uh, in, the, um, in the turn of the century again, and the same, almost the very same slogans are being used. We've got to save the evangelical church from cultural irrelevance. The next generation is not going to come. You're going to lose it. We're going to be on the wrong side of history. And all of those things are being declared. Well, that motivation also is accompanied with a new mission. So the new motivation of the church is to save the church from cultural irrelevance or to, let me put it positive, to make the church culturally relevant. Why? Because its new mission is cultural transformation. That's its new mission. It is going to seek and redeem the city, seek the welfare of the city, change the culture that promote, uh, bring in, uh, bring in that next advancement. And that's exactly what they said, that Christian century is now upon us uh, and writing publications for it. The Christian century is now upon us. And that um, uh, a, a post-millennial utopia is about to begin in this century. And mainline Protestant church is going to bring it in. Now that it's culturally relevant, it will transform the culture. Well, we know that that's not the case. Uh, What happened? Well, here's what happened. Whatever your motion, now please get this. This is a crucial issue. Whatever your motivation is and whatever your mission is will eventually determine what your message and your ministries are. It will eventually control it, eventually define it, eventually direct it. Now, some of you may be sitting there and saying, you know, Pastor, uh, why is it, why is it that, um, why is it that we have these movements? Uh, Why is it that we've got to be on the alert for these false teachers and this false teaching and contend for the faith without being contentious and defend the faith without being defensive? Can I give you three reasons why we always have to be in this battle? And it, it comes in varying degrees of intensity, but we've always got to be ready for it. Three reasons why. And number one is this battle is always before us because Satan in this season of him being defeated but not yet destroyed is going about like a roaring lion. Now, he, is, he has been bound of what he can do, but he, can, but he has certain movements that he is allowed to do that a sovereign God is ultimately using. But Satan is working. In fact, the Bible tells us he is so surely working, you are not to be caught unaware of his snares, and you are not to be ignorant of his schemes. It is my conviction after studying the Bible that Satan has three schemes that he uses. Intimidation, that's number one, to silence the church to intimidation. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I got the power of the gospel, as John just said to us. And then secondly, not only intimidation, but imitation, false religion, man-made religion that imitates Christianity. And then the third scheme that he uses is infiltration. And he does infiltration two ways. One is he infiltrates the membership and the fellowship of the church with gossip and slander and envy and jealousy and all of those things that true biblical love combats. 
And then the other, way, the other thing that he does is he infiltrates the leadership with false teachers and false leaders like the church at Ephesus, men who twist the scriptures and men who lead the disciples astray to themselves. Because Satan is always doing it. In other words, when Paul said, upon my departure, Satan is coming in among you leaders, why does Paul know that? Because Paul thought it while he was there. You fight it all the time. Satan is always creeping in. He is always coming in as an angel of light, bringing the message of death and darkness. The second reason why we're always having to be on the alert for these things is because of the biblically revealed and historically affirmed cycles of apostasy. Let me say that again. Because of the biblically revealed and the uh, historically affirmed cycles of apostasy. If you'll go check the book of Judges, if you'll go check your Bible, you will see that it's, it's, it's almost a pattern. It's a cycle of apostasy. Just read the book of Judges. Every 40 to 80 years, there was an apostasy movement that could only be counteracted by alert, courageous, compassionate, and, um, and um, convicted leadership that God would send to rescue the people of God back to faithfulness. There are always cycles of, of apostasy. I'm, I'm not going to, I would not, I wouldn't, well, I might put it in a book, but I would put a lot of caveats around it. It seems to me that every church, every Christian institution, every denomination has that moment of alertness from 40 to 80 years of their existence. At that 40 to 80 year mark, my own denomination is rapidly approaching that 50 year. I just went through this battle at Westminster Seminary. It took us 10 years, but God gave us victory at Westminster Seminary in this, and it was right at its 70th year of existence is when that battle came. I have seen it, and I've seen it by fault time and time again. We always need to be alert for it. And that 40 to 80 year mark is the danger period. But let me also say, if you'll read your Bible and also read church history, I'll go a step further. I believe about every 500 years in church history, there is a significant theological downgrade, and we are in need of a significant gospel reformation or awakening about every 500 years. Well, interestingly, as you see that 40 to 80 year mark around us, uh, that's not amazing, is it? The onslaught of liberal Christianity and the robustness of the evangelical church as a response to it and the death of the mainline Protestant. And now the evangelical church is under attack with a cousin of liberal Christianity, a cousin because it has the same motivation. It's going to save the evangelical church from irrelevance. And it's going to lead the church. And now what's going to make the church relevant, it's going to be the noteworthy the engine of cultural transformation that the rising generations are going to welcome. Well, when the, so you've got Satan's schemes, you've got the cycles of apostasy, and thirdly, the Bible warns you of the two beasts that do the work of the serpent, Satan. 
You've got the beast that comes up out of the sea, the beast that comes from the land, and the beast of the land stands to do the bidding of the beast of the sea, and both do the bidding of the evil one. What is the beast of the sea? It's tyrannical, authoritarian government that superintends the culture of the, uh, of the era. And then you have the beast of the land, and that is false man-made religion, the dragon that looks like a lamb in the beast as, as it stands. And it stands ready. Now, that has, been, that has been at work since the very beginning of time. Through the Old Testament and the New Testament rises empire after empire after empire with its authoritarian, tyrannical rule of what it accomplishes and a sovereign God at work. And there is an apostate church ready to do its bidding of man-made religion. And now we see it in our day and time. Um, this d deserves much more treatment. I'll just give it to you. But in our day and time, what we see is the rising of a, of a progressive, um, of what I would just simply call a progressive, secular, fascist, uh, authoritarian government that's going to have its way to spread what I would call a cultural Marxism throughout society. That's what is happening on, with the beast of the sea now. Well, over here is, the, is progressive Christianity ready to do the bidding of the progressive secular fascist state. It's ready to do its bidding. It's ready to serve it. It's, it has all the right terms. It has all of the accoutrements, but the reality is it, it serves the cultural movement of authority in terms of the government power rather than accomplish its own purposes. And, um, and, it, and it creeps in through the insidious um, stranglehold of cultural directives whereby the pulpit becomes more directed by what the culture says it can say than what the Bible calls us to say. Now, the, the point is now, the biblical church isn't supposed to go and try to be the state. What the biblical church is supposed to be is the biblical church. We are not supposed to become the state. We're not, to, we're not the counteraction to that beast. And what we are is the true church. We are the true church who serves Jesus Christ, the bib historic biblical Christianity. Well, Harry, what should we do in historic? We're to have the right motivation, the right mission, the right message, and the right ministries. Well, Harry, what are those? I'm glad you asked, and I will lay those out for you next Sunday night. And, and what was supposed to be the last sermon, and we will get to that at that time. But one more time now to look at this issue uh, in a fresh way. And this is what I want you to see, uh, this is what I want you to see in terms of this, um, the, uh, these issues that are before us. There are, last week I gave you seven marks of progressive, let me, there's three sermons that if you want to go back and listen to, there are the five marks of progressive Christianity in the life of Christians. There are the seven marks of progressive Christianity in the life of a church that has been, uh, that has surrendered to contemporary progressive Christianity. And uh, so those sermons have laid that out. Well, tonight I had the opportunity to go back some stuff that I had to self-edit out, and that is to give you the five evidences of the seven marks. 
of progressive. In other words, when those seven marks are present, I'm not going to go back over them, don't have time. When those seven marks are present, such as the, uh, when those seven marks are present, um, there will be five evidences in a church that is surrendering to progressive Christianity. And please, please note, it's not a I surrender to pray. It's something that happens over a period of time. It's an insidious, penetrating movement. Sometimes it is wolves in sheep's clothing that bring it. Sometimes it's well-meaning people that have been captivated by it for a season that we're trying to rescue and we're trying to teach and we're trying to capture to show them that it is not accurate. Brothers and sisters, it's pretty simple, at least, at least the way I would try to, to, say, uh, to get, lead, uh, lead into these five evidences, is that when, when, let me put it this way, if you can go to that next slide I've got for you, the, when the motivation of the church is to be culturally relevant and the mission is cultural transformation, inevitably that leads to message and ministry adulteration. That's what it inevitably leads to. If I want to be relevant to the culture, and if I want to be a culture player for the transformation of the culture, that means I need a seat at the table. And to have a seat at the table, then the, that will adulterate the message. There are certain things they're not going to accept at that table. A hundred years ago, they wouldn't accept the virgin birth. They wouldn't accept the incarnation. They wouldn't accept the miracles. They wouldn't accept. So liberal Christianity, with its motivation to be to be relevant and to be an agent of transformation, then vacuumed out of the message anything that was offensive to the modern mind. And so that they could have a seat at the table, thus liberal theology. Well, the same thing's happening with progressive Christianity. It's not the same doctrines. It's not the issue of the inerrancy of Scripture. It's the issue of the supremacy of Scripture and the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. And I gave you those seven marks. Please remember this. True teaching from last week, the last two weeks. Remember this. True biblical preaching, teaching, and leadership unifies around the truth, not around the person, not around the movement, but around the truth of God's Word. Secondly, it is edifying. It is constructive. It builds people up. Even when it has to tear down sin, it's to build people up. It's constructive. Thirdly, it encourages and enhances the death of sin and the growth of grace. It encourages and enhances the death of sin and the lives of God's people and the growth of grace. But you remember those texts I took you to about how to identify false teachers? If you'll go over here, it's the opposite. They don't promote unity. They promote divisiveness. Not, not around issues of truth, but issues of preference. Issues of personal considerations. Issues of, um, issues of, um, of individuals. It's like Corinth started lining up behind certain leaders. And second, so there's chaos and divisiveness. Secondly, the second thing, instead of constructive edification, it deconstructs. Remember, I showed you all those celebrities. If you notice, they don't say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus. You know, here's what they call themselves now, ex-evangelicals. 
I am deconstructing what I learned in my evangelical faith. Well, let me tell you, that language came from the pulpits they were in. That was deconstructive is what progressive Christianity does. Thirdly, the third thing, it diminishes. It doesn't enhance and encourage. It diminishes and discourage. That's what, it, that's what, those, that's what progressive Christianity does. It may use politically, left or right, it doesn't care. It's just trying to get its, its agenda accomplished against the gospel of saving grace and the whole counsel of God. And so what we have to do is we have to stay on mission, on message, and in ministry. And remember that when progressive Christianity shows up, it deconstructs. So last week I gave you seven marks of deconstruction. The deconstruction of the supremacy of Scripture, the deconstruction of the sufficiency of Scripture, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go back over. I just don't have time. Now what I want to give you is the five evidences if those seven marks are at work in the life of an institution, a seminary, or a church, or a denomination. What are the five evidences to look for? Now I'm going to that other word, diminishes. You see, you see, you see, progressive Christianity, like liberal Christianity, is parasitic. It only lives off of a host as long as the host lives. Secondly, it is deconstructing. Thirdly, it is diminishing. Now, I gave you the seven marks of deconstruction in progressive Christianity when it lays hold of an institution or a church. Now, I want to give you, just very briefly... In the few minutes I've got left, I'm going to just outline for you the five evidences when the seven marks are at work in a ministry, church, denomination, or institution. Here's the first one. The first one is this. There will be the diminishment of the prominence, power, priority, and posture of the ministry of prayer and biblical teaching and pre biblical preaching there will be the it won't be the absence of it no 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 it'll be the diminishment of it wasn't it interesting in the reformation when they got to you, the 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 um the functional cause of the reformation was justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone but by the third by the third year when he got to the diet of worms he said here's the issue it is the supremacy and sufficiency of scripture and the proclamation of the word of God is through the foolishness of the message preached that we are being saved. We must hold to the ministry of prayer and the word. And the reformers grabbed hold of those two lifelines from the church back to heaven and that, that God has established. And that is by the spirit of God with the word of God, the ministry of, of the of prayer and the word. That, that's what we hold on to. That is found. If you look, remember when the, in Acts chapter 6, they said, we got to correct 
this in the, we got to correct the inequities of how we're doing mercy ministry, but we can't create a bigger problem by neglecting the ministry of prayer and the word. So two times they said, let's solve this, but let's not neglect the ministry of prayer and the word. If you neglect the ministry of prayer and the word, you're not going to have any resources to give. You're not going to have a heart to minister and you're not going to have people that are looking to you for ministry. So let's stay with prayer and the word. We can't neglect it. Well, in a progressive church, you will find over a period of time a functional diminishing of the priority, the, the power, the posture, and the prominence of prayer and the ministry of the word. In the Reformation, when it was recaptured, they got that pulpit off the side wall, put it in the front of the church, they, they, from, and then they, the sacrament, instead of being elevated, was brought down to the ground because it was under the pulpit, and then the pulpit was lifted up because it's the ministry of the Word that allows us to give praise to God by faith because faith comes from hearing the Word of Christ. I don't want to go too far on this. So please don't hold me to it and don't put me on the rack and stretch me afterwards. I'll be down front again. All of you that want to come talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. But take it easy on me. I just cannot help but believe as I watch what's happening to the evangelical church and I go to YouTube and I see a, a darkened room like a theater where the church is gathering. And I, and I just, I, I, there's a sense of a no, no gravitas. And there may be props for the preacher. But the one thing that you won't find in there is a pulpit. Now, folks, I know you can preach without a pulpit. I do it all the time. That's my kids. I know you can preach without a pulpit. But that pulpit made a statement in the Reformation. I think the removing of it is making a statement. I think its absence or its replacement of the plexiglass lectern, movable and clearly movable, Almost like it's a bother, but man, we do have to have something to put our notes on. The one thing I loved about the pulpit, particularly one that allows you to move because the word gets hold of the man in his body as well as his soul, but the pulpit is that which blocks the man, as long with, along with the Reformation gown, might I add, because it's not the man, it's the preaching. It's through the foolishness of the message preached. Well, in contemporary progressive Christianity, it's the celebrity doing the talk. And there is the loss of expository preaching. There is the loss of protracted intercessory prayer. Those things are gone. Why? Because we're much more interested in our social organizations and our endeavors than we are the preaching of the word, whereby men and women are saved, sanctified, sent, and secured. 
And we've got a lot more confidence in the leader than we do in the preaching. And a lot more confidence in the programs than we do in the proclamation. The first thing to look for is the diminishing of the pulpit ministry and the prayer ministry of the church. Secondly, and I find this in every single one. I've, I've taken my time to put these down. I could give you my footnotes and research, uh, but I've just, I'm just giving it to you now. The second thing you'll find is the diminishing commitment to world missions. Now, Harry, what about local missions? It's hard for me to say that because that's usually what they do in order to, and, and, and they take, and they no longer look at world missions that were to go to all the nations, and they say, well, we're going to go right here. Now, I love going right here. Folks, I mean, listen, if we're going to shine the light out there, the, more intense, the, the light ought to even be more intense right here, shouldn't it? So I'm all for that. I don't want to be a donut church. You know, all the sweetness out there and the hole right here. <clears throat> we got to have local missions, regional missions, national missions. We got to have all of that. But why do we have to give up world missions? Well, I believe you give up world missions because the culture does not affirm it. World missions is in the category of cultural imperialism. And if you're engaged in world missions, what you are is a cultural imperialist. And we don't want to be called that. And therefore, it's not simply let's order the priorities from local to na- regional to national. It's a matter of you cut that off because we, we don't want that criticism. And national missions is no longer church planting. Regional missions is no longer church planting. Regional missions is all about social endeavors which I am not opposed to. My goodness, you know me well enough to know that. But can I tell you the best way to get mercy ministry done? Plant a church that's got a good diaconate. That's the best way to get it done. I remember the time that we were helping for three years a a church down in Mississippi that got blown away. And I loved our deacons that went down there, and they were giving stuff out of the trucks every week, just going down, giving it out. And the preacher kept saying, oh, y'all write letters to thank Briarwood. And one of our deacons got so mad about it. I think it was a righteous anger. And he said, don't say that again. We're pulling the truck out. We brought this to you. We're in Birmingham. You're here. This is your diaconal ministry. They need to come to you right here. So world missions and personal evangelism is gone along with church planting. No longer is personal evangelism. Now what we're going to do is we're going to live in such a way that people are going to be attracted to Jesus. And the word is attractional evangelism. Listen, I love friendship evangelism. I love hospitality evangelism. I love attractional evangelism. I love all of those things, but here is the bottom line. You get saved by faith in Christ, and faith comes by hearing. You've got to personally share the gospel with people. They've got, up until then, they may be attracted and admire your Christian life. Praise the Lord. 
But what they go home and say, you know, boy, that, that Harry, that uh, Joe Smith, what a great guy. I tell you, he's a great guy. You know, he's got some religion. I think that's what I need. I'll go get some religion. Somebody give me the Mormon church. Our, our lives can open doors. Our lives can give an opportunity. But we have to share the gospel with people. They can't get saved without hearing the gospel. And the gospel, Jesus speaks to the hearts of people through his gospel word when you share it with them. Number three, I'll just give these last three to you. Number three, there will be the absence of gospel multiplication, maturation, and mobilization. There will be a diminishment of gospel multiplication. People aren't getting saved. There will be a a diminishment of maturation. People aren't growing in grace through the gospel as the foundation, formation, and motivation of a Christian life. And you can see the lack of maturation. Why? No joy. No joy. Joy's gone. Folks, your joy ought to be bigger now than it was the day you were converted. You ought to be more amazed at grace now than you were that day. That's why we need gospel evangelism and gospel discipleship. We need to have multiplication and maturation and gospel mobilization to go and win the world to Christ. Instead, with contemporary Christianity, progressive Christianity, you know what we're telling people? You know, there are some sins that you're never going to change in life. There are certain sexual sins that are besetting, and you're never going to have any progress. So what we'll do is not kill that sin, mortify that sin, and grow in grace. What we're going to do is we're going to teach you therapeutically how to manage that sin. That's what we're going to do. We're going to forget sin as a sin. It's a syndrome to be managed instead of a sin to be killed and a new way of life to be put in place. See, that's a loss of the God. This, this, the progressive Christianity goes at the most foundational doctrine of all, the, that which is, Paul said, is of first things, and that's the gospel. The declarative blessings of the gospel that people are here in evangelism and the transformational blessings of the gospel that are promised that people experience in discipleship. You have been born again. The power of sin has been broken. Well, I still got this besetting sin. Well, Jesus tells you you're going to have besetting sin, but he also tells you the power of sin has been broken. Well, all I can tell you, Harry, is I'm still doing that sin. Well, here's my answer. You're either not converted yet, or we haven't got intense discipleship in your life, or you don't know how to measure your progress. But if you're saved, the power of sin has been broken. If I can't believe that, then I can't believe I have been declared justified. If I can't believe the transformational promises. Now, nowhere is that you're perfect after you're converted. The Bible is clear. Converted people, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. No one has ever said that. But no longer do I live in sin. Yes, I still have sin living in me, but it does not reign. 
Now we need to teach people with discipleship and the means of grace how you push sin out and how you cut it off. How you, how you grow in grace by getting saturated in God's word and, and cutting out that which would feed sin in your life. So gospel multiplication and maturation is what is in desperate need. And therefore, and I was going to do another evidence, but I wanted to keep it at five. If I went to another evidence, it'd be six. That's an even number. And then I'd be a Baptist. I got to stay odd. So just put this one in right here. And that's this. And that is, and that is gospel multiplication, maturation, and mobilization will be seen by a people who intentionally are pursuing holiness. Not to be saved, but out of love for their Savior and a desire to be more effective in the lives of others. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching that you may ensure not only salvation for yourself and grow in grace, but that you may be effective in the lives of others. So when you see that work of grace in people's life, know this. When you understand the gospel, you know definitive sanctification by God's grace in Christ through his blood and righteousness, I am holy. And then I am experiencing that. Here is the one time use the word progressive in our era. I am experiencing progressive sanctification. I am growing in grace. It's called the pilgrim's progress. Praise the Lord. It's that which brings me home to glory because of the cross. Well, um, the, the fourth one is there will be a diminishing of confessional fidelity and moral clarity. There will be the diminishment of confessional clarity and, I'm sorry, confessional fidelity. I'm astounded. I'm just absolutely astounded. Absolutely astounded at the time that the reports I hear in in progressive churches of how they will technically embrace our constitution, our confession, but in reality circumvent it. That destroys the unity of a denomination and a church. No, there is, we say what we mean, we mean what we say, and we're never to be mean when we say it. And there... And now there's a lack of moral clarity. Interestingly, when progressive Christianity comes, comes through, the pulpits will preach like never before on the cultural sins that the culture affirms to be preached against. But they will be strangely silent on those sins that the Bible says we are to identify in the whole counsel of God. But the culture tells us to be silent. And then finally, biblical masculinity and femininity ministries. You can forget men's ministries and women's ministries being robust in a progressive church. No, in this day of the LGBTQ agenda, that would be unacceptable to the culture. Brothers, can I just go ahead and tell you all this? There's a lot of toxic men, but biblical masculinity is not toxic. Actually, when you see all these horrendous stories of men and what they're doing, we've just had it this last week, 
The problem is not men. The problem is the heart. It's a toxic heart in the man or a toxic heart in the women. When you see that, it's all the more that we need to disciple with the gospel men to be men, act like men, women to be women, older women to teach younger women, older men to teach younger men, how to be men of God according to the Scripture. The problem of toxicity in our culture is not the gender any more than it's the DNA of your skin. The toxicity is not the gender, not the DNA of your skin. Racism is a heart issue. Toxic sexuality, harassment, perversion, those issues are issues of the heart. And the only thing that can change it is not cosmetic mutilation of men surgically. It is the glorious, the glorious work of the surgical work of the Spirit to take out the heart and make us right with God and help men to become men of God, not men of the world. Women who are women of God and not women of the world. I want to go back and ask you to go back, if you would, for me. Uh, two slides, and I'm going to end with this. Uh, b- back one more. Uh, no, no, there you go. Right, right there. Thank you. So whenever you decide that cultural relevance is your, is your motivation, cultural transformation is your mission, it's going to define your message and your ministries. Why? Because of cultural accommodation. We just passed two overtures at the General Assembly. Overture 23 and 37. Those many, not all, many who voted against it. The words that were coming back through social media was this. If we hold to sexual purity and chastity and these declarations concerning men who are ordained to the ministry, it's going to thwart our outreach ministry in certain arenas. If, if you ever wanted to see progressive Christianity, just go read that statement. What you ought to be asking yourself is not, will this, if we hold to the truth, will it thwart our ministry according to the world telling us we're not going to listen to you? What we ought to be asking ourselves is, what does the Bible say? What does it mean to be above reproach? Not what does the culture accept. You see, once you do this, cultural accommodation becomes cultural contextualization. And cultural contextualization is not biblical contextualization. Biblical contextualization is speaking the truth lovingly in terms that the culture and the people can understand. Cultural contextualization is only speaking the terms and the words that the culture accepts. That leads us to cultural capitulation. And that means the church, instead of biblical magisterium, the scripture alone is our rule of faith and practice, it's cultural magisterium. The culture is defining our message and our ministries. And that's why progressive Christianity is a cousin to liberal Christianity. Progressive theology is the result of 
of the progressive motivation and mission, even as liberal theology was the result of liberal, of the motivation and mission. Well, brothers and sisters, I've tried to lay out for you those five evidences. I think they are accurate. I would encourage you to look at them. But the last one I would simply reiterate to you is whenever you find biblical Christianity, it's honest with grief. It's honest with the, with the, with the battle. But the joy of the Lord will ultimately shine forth and overflow. May the joy of your salvation fill you. Your Savior reigns. God, thank you for our time together in your word. Would you please bless my brothers and sisters as they serve you? We give you praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.